The Leap is also supported by a generous gift from an anonymous KQED major donor. This is The Leap. I'm Amy Standen. Today's story is actually two stories, or one story and then one smaller story, that will seem at first like a complete digression, but I think isn't. The first story is Frankie's, and it begins with a sound. Frankie was hearing that knocking noise, but no one else was. It was just in his head. And over time, the sounds got stranger. He started to hear whispers. It kind of sounded like two people talking very far away, but you can't hear exactly what they're saying. And then this strange belief lodged itself in his head that he could read people's minds. He says he could hear them talking before they even opened their mouths. And eventually, all of this coalesced into delusions, the classic symptom of schizophrenia, which is what Frankie had. And I hadn't really thought about this before I met Frankie, but it turns out delusions can be kind of fun. Like this one time he was in a mental hospital, sitting in bed. Um, the voices would tell me that I could control everything around me, you know, this is my world. Which made him feel good, kind of important. And then he noticed that there were shadows on the walls, and the shadows looked like his friends. And the voices, I thought they were my friends, that they were in there with me. In there means in the hospital, where suddenly there's this party going on, at least so he thinks. One of the nice voices was talking to him. It says, Picture me riding your favorite motorcycle. And so I pictured a Harley Davidson 883. And he started writing it right there, like in the hallways, you know, back and forth. And I would just go like, damn, that's pretty cool. I met Frankie a few years ago when I was in San Diego. I was doing some stories about young people with schizophrenia. And Frankie stuck out immediately. He was just this cheerful, handsome, really magnetic guy. He was the guy all the other kids in the program seemed to want to be around, to be like. There was nothing in his affect that hinted at who he'd been just a couple of years ago in that mental hospital. When I met him, Frankie was laser-focused on one goal, normalcy. He didn't want to be famous or make a bunch of money or anything like that. He'd had this dream since childhood. It was the driving force in his life. I was going to start a family. I was going to have a job. I was going to move out. You know, I was going to be independent. Which maybe doesn't seem like that ambitious of a dream. But for Frankie, this was not a given. He had spent a big chunk of his early adulthood in and out of mental hospitals. He told me the story of one night when he was at home living with his family. And it was 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. My sister and my mom were sleeping. And I was sitting in the bed. The voices were telling him that the only way to get rid of them was to destroy himself. The only way to be alive and to go back to normal was to kill myself and go through that death. You know, they started testing me, like, oh, you, you're not a man if you don't do it. Like, that's the only way. So, I don't know, there was a screwdriver right there, right next to me, and I ended up grabbing it. Frankie showed me what happened next, how he dragged the screwdriver up and down his forearm, gouging into the flesh. He says he couldn't even feel it. His body was numb. I was just trying to picture positive thoughts, you know, like, I'm going to find a new girlfriend, I'm going to get a better job, I'm going to go back to school. All the things that I want to do, you know, because I'm going to have a second life. His sister woke up. She came into the room, took the screwdriver away, cleaned him up, and asked him, what are you doing? And I told her, this is the only way to save me, you know, like, I'm going back to normal. At this point, the word schizophrenia had never come up in Frankie's family. But there was a history of strange, unsettling things in the family that no one really wanted to talk about. 
Nancy. This is Frankie's mom, Elizabeth. I had asked her whether anyone else had been through what Frankie went through. Yeah. I have, she said. A cousin and a sister and a brother, too, I think. Her own psychotic episode was about a decade ago. She says it's embarrassing to remember. She acted like a crazy woman in church. Elizabeth saw all of this in religious terms. When the disease hit her, she thought she was possessed. She thought demons were chasing her. So when Frankie started acting strangely, she panicked. She threw holy water on everyone in the house, even the dog. The whole family laughs about this now. She hired an exorcist. (laughs) We tried everything we could. We made many mistakes. Eventually, Elizabeth ran across a pamphlet for a program in San Diego that specializes in young people with serious mental health problems. She got Frankie enrolled, and the whole family started using words like schizophrenia and mental health. Therapists came to the house. They got Frankie out of his room. They put him in group therapy with other teenagers who were going through similar things. And for a very short time, he took antipsychotic drugs. He got really into boxing, too. And by the time I met him, a couple of years after all of this, Frankie was doing well. He was that charming, optimistic guy I was talking about earlier. And there was something else. I'm excited. He was about to be a dad. Yeah, it's going to be a boy. Frankie met Myra in middle school, but they hadn't really known each other until this year. Two months after they started dating, she got pregnant. And Frankie went into planning mode. I got Baby, We've Got a Date by Bob Marley. Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. The music to play to his future son list was two pages long, handwritten on a lined notepad. Love to Love You, Baby by Donna Summer. Next page, the to-do list, starting with get a new car. Yeah, Forerunner, Toyota. Some bucket list items for himself. I got a camping trip. I got to go, you know, feed my wild side one last time. He was so determined to do all the right things. Hi, guys. Infant CPR, which I just got certified for. Check in with Mayra, my girlfriend every day. Mayra, I love you. All of this was really sweet, so I hate to sound like a pessimist, but it also sounded risky. Frankie was just a few years out of a full-blown psychotic episode. His family history put him at a strong genetic risk for it, and some of the plans he was making might put him at a higher risk, too. Stress and lack of sleep can aggravate psychosis. And so much about this situation sounded stressful. He and Myra were just getting to know each other. Neither of them had a job. They were living with their parents, and they were about to enter one of the most stressful human experiences, early parenthood. Do you worry, ever worry that, that you'll start hearing voices again or seeing things again? I still have the symptoms, but they're really, really low. The voices, they're more like sounds now. Like if I'm trying to go to sleep, but I can't. If I Does that scare you when that happens? No, it doesn't scare me. What I went through was way worse. The chances of that way worse part coming back were high. I talked to the psychiatrist I know, Rachel Lowy. She's never met Frankie, but she works with young people like him at UC San Francisco. I asked her, what are the odds this will come back? 80% of people who've had a first episode of psychosis will have another within about five years. But instead of moving cautiously, Frankie was diving head first toward that dream he'd had when he was a kid. The family, the normal life, independence. He had set his sights on this one goal. And the risks of moving too quickly, he didn't really seem to be thinking much about that stuff. He'd made a choice, put his eye on a prize, and that was all that mattered. 
So here's the second story. And it's a different kind of story in almost every way. But I think somehow it helped explain to me why Frankie was moving so quickly toward this new life. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, you're very faint. That guy on the phone is named John Vincent. And I had called him to hear a story about one night when John was out on a boat with some friends. They were looking for a good place to go scuba diving for lobsters. So they anchored their boat next to a buoy. It was dark and the buoy was like, it's white. It was white from the bird, from birds pooping on it put the boat right over it, and then I dropped the anchors right on top of it. As it happened, this was an ideal spot. John was stuffing lobsters into his dive bag, and that is when it started. I'm just swimming around, about, about ready to head back to the boat, but then I, I kind of feel a current kind of just pulling me. Remember that buoy he saw, the one that was covered in bird poop? What was supposed to be red, as in danger. Danger because just under that buoy was a massive intake pipe for the Scattergood power plant. Thousands of gallons of water were being pulled into that pipe. And along with them, John Vincent, slowly but surely being pulled away from the safety of his boat. He looked at his air gauge. Still had like 300 pounds. I still have like an eighth of a tank, if that, left. I mean, a very small amount of air left in my tank, but I knew that I wasn't out. I asked him, how long would that last you? I don't know, 10 minutes. Wow. If you're breathing slowly, you could, you know, you could, you could make it last. But the problem was John wasn't breathing slowly. He was panicking. And when you panic, you don't sip air. You gasp for it. So he knew he had to get a grip. I slowed down my breathing, and then it was kind of like, what next? You know, I'm not out of air. I'm not dead yet. So this is where John had to make a decision. He could keep trying to fight the current, try and get back to the boat. Or he could do the opposite, swim into the pipe, away from his boat. He chose the pipe. The current was too strong to fight, so he stopped fighting. I started kicking with it. I knew that I'm not swimming against it. I started kicking with it. I said, I'm going in. John had no idea where this pipe would take him or what was at the end of it. A turbine, an underwater tank where he would drown. He didn't know how long the pipe was, whether 10 minutes of air was enough. But he says he didn't really dwell on any of that. Any indecision he might have had was behind him. It had to be. His entire focus was on getting to whatever was at the end of that pipe. What happened next, after our break. Before we left, John Vincent was barreling through an underwater pipe off the California coast and running out of air. And he had decided that his best chance of survival was to power forward into the pipe, despite the million reasons that this might be a terrible idea. The pipe was about a quarter of a mile long, made a couple turns. John was fading. You know, I was probably pretty close to being out of air because of the, you know, the panic situation. You know, I was, I was breathing fast. I was kicking hard. Suddenly, John found himself spat out into a round concrete tank, like an elevator shaft filled with water. I looked up and I could see a lid about 40 feet up. He swam to the side, pulled himself onto a little ledge, and took one of the lead weights off of his diving belt and began banging it against a metal pipe on the wall. I started doing it in successions of three because that's what you do. You know, if you're in distress, you want to get somebody's attention. A man riding a bicycle near the plant heard the clanging and called 911. There, they pulled that lid off. There, were, there was about 10 men staring down at me just going, whoa. Just, I'll never forget the look. I could see their tonsils. That's how big around, you know, their mouths were wide, that wide open. John made it. He even got to eat lobster for dinner that night. So on the face of it, these situations have nothing in common. Lobsters, scuba diving, schizophrenia, this, I know, feels like a stretch. But if you boil them down, these two stories are about men focused on one thing, survival. Each man's life was threatened. 
and each made a guess about where survival lay and how to get there. And even though there are huge, scary risks involved, they're putting on their blinders and just kicking hard toward that goal. It's a leap of faith. You can't know for sure that having the baby with the girl you just met or swimming into the tube is the right thing to do. How could you? But if you're going to make that choice to go forward, you have to barrel forward. You can't bring doubt along on that journey. There's no point in asking questions. As much as I had pestered Frankie to lay out the psychological accounting of his decisions, whether he thought about this, factored in that, he wouldn't go there. I can't afford, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I can't afford to go back. Back to being the Frankie with the voices and the screwdriver. I have my family that needs me, and I just don't like, I'm already done with that part of my life. He was like a man in a pipe. He was just swimming too. That's Frankie's leap of faith, that if you just throw everything you've got at the thing you most want and don't look back, it just might work. <laughs> A year after that first trip to San Diego, I went to see Frankie again. I wanted to see how family life was working out for him. He brought Myra and Angel, their son, who was nine months old, and we all met up at a playground. Myra was taking care of Angel full-time. Money was tight. Myra hadn't been getting along so well with Frankie's parents, so they were living with her family. But it was crowded. They dreamed of getting their own place. Frankie was about to take on a third part-time job, working as a security guard near the border. This would mean less sleep, less time helping Myra out with the baby, and inevitably it seemed more stress. Myra worried about all of that. But for her, this was just Frankie being Frankie. I asked her what she learned about him over the last year. Well, he, he has a lot of plans all the time, new plans all the time, new ideas, new goals forgets about the goals like the forerunner. <laughs> he didn't even remember that. I didn't even remember that one. <laughs> she seemed kind of charmed by this ability of Frankie's to always be chasing down some dream, kicking toward the future without worrying about the possible consequences. Optimism is contagious. You want ice cream? It was getting toward evening. Angel's bedtime was in an hour. But Frankie was already on to the next thing. There was a barber shop for Lise out near Imperial Beach that he thought they might almost be able to afford to rent. He could learn to cut hair. Myra could do bridal makeup. In his mind, Frankie was already 10 years ahead, imagining Angel growing up around the barber shop. He could be the cool kid, you know, in the, in the school. Be like, oh, my dad could cut everyone's hair, and then his little crew could come over and I'll cut them up. And he could start learning how to do that, you know, learn the business, learn how to be responsible. This plan sounded a little half-baked. Frankie isn't a barber, and Myra doesn't do makeup, professionally at least. And then there was the fact of Angel being still just a baby, and the stress of running a business when you've never done that before. But the practicalities of all of this were not weighing Frankie down. So Myra strapped Angel into his red car seat, and we took off, past the dollar stores and the Subway sandwich shop, literally into the sunset, to a tidy strip mall near the beach. The barber shop that was for rent was closed. Frankie and Myra peered through the windows. It's too dark. Can't really see. But there were a couple of units upstairs from the barbershop. You see anything? Maybe they could live there. I didn't even know that there was apartments, so that's pretty cool. I'm gonna look into that, you know? And there's a Froyo place right next door. Oh, Froyo. <laughs> the Leap is produced by me, Amy Standen. And me, Judy Campbell, for KQED San Francisco. Marianne McCune edited this story. And here at KQED, we want to thank Danny Bringer, Jason Black, Cecilia Lay, Susie Oki, Joanne Wallace, and Matt Williams. 
Music in this story is by Chris Collin, Seth Samuel, Nicholas Naoti, and Nick Dupre. Nathan Campbell wrote and performed the song you're just about to hear. This is the second to last episode of our first season of The Leap. The next episode comes out in a couple weeks. And then, fingers crossed, we'll be back for a second season. And I'll just say that the more subscribers we have and the more reviews and ratings in iTunes, the more likely that second season is. So subscribe if you haven't already, and thank you. And also, we've been getting your emails, and they are so great. Please keep them coming. The leap at kqed.org. That helps us and helps other people find out about the show. Thanks so much. Leaping lizards, is that really me? I wasn't born to fly, Lord, Lord, I was born to creep. So circle your buzzards over the yawning deep. I bet all I got against your life that I'm gonna